Welcome to Navarra Life. I'm Michael Walker, and I'm in a relatively good mood because I saw Beyonce last night. In worse news, um, Keir Starmer's authoritarianism within the Labour Party is completely out of control. You knew that already, but more evidence for you today. Um, a Metro mayor now blocked from standing. Um, we will be speaking to the mayor in question, Jamie Driscoll, in one moment. Um, first, though, throughout tonight's show, I will be joined by Mike Bankol. Mike, thank you so much for joining us again this evening. Always a pleasure, Michael. The two Michaels are back in action again. First story, let's go straight on. We are very used to Keir Starmer's Labour using underhand tactics to purge the party of anyone to the left of Gordon Brown. But one latest instance really takes the biscuit. Jamie Driscoll is the incumbent Labour mayor of North of Tyne. He holds a significant position equal to Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester or Steve Rotherham in the Liverpool city areas. These are metro mayors. But Driscoll won't be able to stand again as the Labour candidate in upcoming elections. And that's not because Labour members want a different candidate. Rather, it's because Labour bosses have ruled him off the shortlist. The Labour Party has refused to comment on what motivated the decision. However, an indication of the cause was provided by Luke Akehurst, a leading right-winger on the party's NEC. He tweeted this. So in response to someone saying that blocking Driscoll was a misstep, Luke Akehurst says, I don't see how someone who provocatively shares a platform with Ken Loach could possibly be a Labour candidate. It would remove any credibility from all the assurances Keir has given the EHRC and the Jewish community. The event Luke Akehurst is referring to is this one. Um, so this was Jamie Driscoll in conversation with Ken Loach. It took place about two months ago. And of course, Ken Loach is one of Britain's leading filmmakers who has twice won the highest prize at Cannes for films about social injustice. But he's also been expelled from the Labour Party. That was for his support of groups who were barred from the Labour Party, including Labour Against the Witch Hunt, who campaigned against expulsions related to allegations of anti-Semitism. So where do we stand then? Well, it looks like Jamie Driscoll is being blocked from re-standing as Labour mayor for sharing a platform with someone who, though a leading film director, had refused to disown groups who themselves had refused to agree with Keir Starmer's interpretation of anti-Semitism in Labour. Um, it sounds a little tenuous, as you can probably tell. But Shadow Business Secretary Jonathan Reynolds disagrees. This Sunday, he spoke to Sophie Ridge on Sky. We've got Jamie Driscoll uh, on the show uh, later. He's been barred from standing as Labour candidate for the North East Mayor. Now, his supporters say that this is all part of factionalism in the Labour Party, effectively Keir Starmer trying to purge the left. What, what would you say to that? Well, I would strongly disagree with that. The Labour Party is a very large organisation, which bigger, I think, still than every other political party in terms of membership added together. But Keir Starmer has changed the Labour Party since he became leader. And part of that process is we have a due diligence process in place. And that's because, frankly, in the past, not every person elected as a Labour representative has met the standard required of them. And specifically, in a case where somebody shares a platform with someone who themselves has been expelled from the Labour Party for their views on anti-Semitism, for opposing the tough action that needed to happen, that would preclude them from being a Labour candidate going forward. Because when we said we'd have zero tolerance of anti-Semitism, when we said we would tear it out from its roots, we we're serious about that. And I know sometimes that will cause a row. It's maybe not the expedient political thing to do. But we are absolutely serious about sorting this problem out. Keir Starmer has made that absolutely clear. And no one should be surprised that we're, we're sticking to our work. Of course, there's nothing politically expedient about about blocking one of the most left-wing candidates in the country. Political expediency, I'm sure, didn't come into this. Um, Keir Starmer has this afternoon also given his response. Well, the North East Mayor is a great opportunity going forward to have um, a fantastic mayor working with what I hope will be a Labour government delivering for the North East. We're you know, going through a rigorous selection exercise and I make no apologies for saying we want the highest quality candidates. I'm joined now by Jamie Driscoll. Um, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, can you start by telling us, I suppose, how you how you found out that you would not be allowed to restand as Labour candidate um, in your job, in the job that you currently hold? Yeah, um, interesting. You know, Kia there saying this is a great opportunity going forwards. I'm already the mayor. I was at the heart of negotiating this deal from government. I've levered in the best funded devolution deal in the country. So if you talk about high quality candidates, I think I would pass any threshold, as indeed anyone who's worked with me has come out and said. Um, so I found out, I got an email. Um, what was it? It was about half past four on Friday. 
saying, thank you for applying, you've been unsuccessful. And that was pretty much it. Um, so no comment from the Labour Party on why. Um, very disappointing to hear Johnny Reynolds. I have a lot of time for Johnny Reynolds. Um, last time I was in Labour HQ talking about policy to lots of front benches, um, he was quite good. He was one of the ones who was well-informed. He had a good discussion about pension reform and levering an extra investment. Um, and he looked terribly uncomfortable there, didn't he? You could see his body language is swollen. He's you know, clearly being told that's the line he's got to give. Um, but he does say something which is untrue. I think he says Ken Loach was expelled for his views on anti-Semitism. Ken Loach was expelled for complaining about the process of being expelled. Um, and for supporting the prescribed organisation. So the Labour Party want to do that. People have views on it. But I think it's wrong to accuse someone of being anti-Semitic when what they're complaining about is processing the Labour Party. We know this now from you know tweets from Luke Akehurst and Johnny Reynolds sort of speaking to the media, but no one has formally told you that the reason you're no longer able to stand as a Labour candidate is because of that event with Ken Loach. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It was like uh, Luke Akehurst. Never heard of him. Who's Luke Akehurst? He's maybe you should have made closer friends of Luke Akehurst, and you'd be standing next time. He is the he, he's a right wing NEC member, and he's very influential. And he's also director of We Believe in Israel, a think tank. Um, so a funny combination of jobs. Um, what was your thinking when you hosted that event with Ken Loach? Were you did, did you know that it would be provocative? There are very few feature films set in the northeast. We've had in the last twenty years. It's just been I Daniel Blake. Wonderful film, exposing social injustice. Sorry we missed you. Wonderful film, explaining about the gig economy and the effect it has on family life. And then most recently, due to be released, is The Old Oak, which is about the experience of Syrian refugees integrating into overcoming racism, community cohesion. Um, all the things that the Labour Party should be celebrating. Um, and the live theatre, uh, an arts organisation that's having its 50th birthday, part of their celebrations, um, invite me and Ken Loach to do an in-conversation event, um, very popular, um, light-hearted. Um, we're talking about films, uh, Ken's favourite film scene, mine, um, how he got started in film. We even ended up start talking about Star Trek at one point. This was not a discussion about you know the origins of the state of Israel or any such. Um, nothing in that conversation was remotely controversial, other than from a, a sense and taste about film's point of view. Did you ever have the thought that, yeah, Ken Loach, great filmmaker, obviously this would be a good event, but also he has been expelled from the Labour Party. Were there, was there an aide that said, are you sure you want to do this? Was there a sort of text from someone in Starmer's team saying, you know, you'll be sorry if you, if you go through with this event, or was it just something that didn't even cross your mind? I've never had any contact ever in my four years as mayor from the Labour press office about anything, saying this is what you should say, this is what you shouldn't say. Occasionally get a briefing about, um, you know, but I think I'll probably count them on the fingers of one hand. So no. Um, and having done that event um, back in March, it's now June, I don't hear anything about it either. So there was nothing that said, oh, as a mayor, you shouldn't have done this. You know, here's the guidelines. Nothing whatsoever. They store it up till they wait for selection. Here's an interesting question. If I'm good enough to be a mayor, why aren't I good enough to be a candidate? You haven't been disciplined, let's be clear, right? It's not that you've broken a rule, it's that you just don't qualify next time. That's it. Um, so I specifically asked um, during the selection process, look, is there is there anything disciplinary here? And the answer was no. I said, is there any allegation of anti-Semitism here? And they said no. Um, and uh, Nor is it about your competence. Because I'm widely regarded as I've done a, a terrific job. And this is, you know, this is what I actually want to get onto. This is what I'd like the debate to be about. Yes, there's factionalism in the Labour Party, we know that. But this is much bigger. This is about devolution and the autonomy of regions. The people in the Northeast, I've had so much support, cross-party. It's untrue. Um, the, you know, it, it, it's unbelievable how much support's come in. Because the people of the Northeast are outraged that a panel of the Labour Party, that the Labour Party central office is stopping the people of the Northeast from choosing their candidate. Um, and they've done this because they know I would have won. They know I would have stormed it. Otherwise, they wouldn't have kept me off the long list, would they? You've also had some support from the North West. Um, so we can get a, a letter from Steve Rotherham and Andy Burnham, so Liverpool City Region Mayor and the Mayor of Greater Manchester. So it's uh, addressed to Joanna, 
um, who's Joanna Baxter from the NEC. We wish to express our concern to you and other members of the NEC about the handling of the selection process for the Northeast Mayor. Whilst we appreciate the NEC's important role in upholding standards within the party and rooting out any form of anti-Semitism, racism and discrimination, it also has a responsibility to ensure decisions are democratic, transparent and fair. To exclude a sitting mayor from a selection process with no right of appeal appears to us to be none of these things. At the very least, we believe Jamie Driscoll should be entitled to a process of appeal with the ability to put his case to an NEC panel. We consider this to be a reasonable request and would be grateful if the NEC would give it serious consideration. And they say we have worked closely with Jamie and seen firsthand the good work he has done as mayor. He's taken a constructive non-partisan approach to his work as shown by his success in delivering a new devolution deal with government for the North East. He's also been a valuable member of our M10 group of mayors. We believe he deserves to be treated with more respect than he has so far been shown. We can show you a response from the other side of the party, and it's a response to that letter. So this is from the Politico Playbook. One Keir Starmer ally told Playbook, quote, Andy Burnham is fishing in the swamp for votes. The problem for him is we've drained it, unquote. And Politico go on to write, former cabinet ministers Nadim Zahawi and Simon Clark were also criticised by Jewish journalist Stephen Pollard and others for defending Driscoll. And they say the same Starmer ally added, quote, imagine if two senior Labour MPs started having a go at the Tories for refusing to endorse a Tory politician accused of anti-Semitism. Um, now, of course, Jamie Driscoll, as you, you haven't been accused of anti-Semitism. So Unfortunately, you don't know who this Starmer ally is. Otherwise, that might be to some degree actionable. Um, but yeah. let's talk about the, you know, where you're getting support from within the party, where you're getting hate from within the party. Do you feel like you have any allies that are powerful enough that, you know, fighting this battle has any hope of success? Um, well, the most powerful Labour people in power in England backing me, Metro Mayors, uh, of which I'm one. Trade union leaders backing me. Most importantly, the members are backing me. Now, will that be enough? What's the process? Um, it's notable that the Labour Party has come up with a whole series of things to do with, in our judgment, if your judgment is not good enough, you're out with no right of appeal. That's really quite concerning for democracy if this is going to be a party of government, isn't it? Um, I'm genuinely concerned about that. But the, the, the bigger issue here is this is not about positions in the Labour Party. This is about wielding state power. So you've got a guy here who's created 5,000 jobs, built affordable homes, implemented a Green New Deal, but he's calling for the taking back into public control our energy system, our transport system, um, rooting out privatisation in the NHS so that it's not extracting wealth from public services. And notably, uh, of course, we saw last summer um, MPs being threatened if they go on picket lines and, and you know, Sam Terry. It was the tenuous excuse that it was about making policy on the hoof. It wasn't. He was sad for going on a picket line. We know that. Um, I go on picket lines and I support people. I don't fit this image they want to project of the Labour Party. They're quite clearly trying to create a monoculture. And I think that's dangerous. Monocultures, whether it's in society, whether it's in an ecosystem, they are not resilient. For resilience... You need different ideas. You need a plurality. And crucially, this shows that they don't trust the decision of the members. Because what would have been the story here? Um, people lab label me as the last Corbyn minister in power. I actually reject that. Um, there are plenty of people in power who voted for Jeremy Corbyn. And I also, I was a socialist um, long, long before Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party. Um, but I do things like work with industry. I'm setting up a uh, venture capital fund to directly fund businesses in the northeast. And last year, we were the number one region for inward investment. That's economic competence defined. And these are not things that people would associate with a Corbynista. So what we're trying to do is say, look, this guy doesn't fit. We want it centrally controlled. When we know that the only way we're going to get the solution to the very deep economic and sustainability problems that we've got in Britain is with more devolution. And this is a sign that the Labour Party does not believe in devolution. They will not trust their members to make these decisions. Are you considering standing as an independent? I want the Labour Party to reverse the decision. Um, so they can stop the process. They can put me on the ballot and they can let the members decide. 
which is what they should. So that's what I'm going to be pushing now. It's also worth noting, by the way, Michael, this new authority doesn't exist yet. It's not been signed off by councils. It's not been, uh, the order hasn't been laid in Parliament by the Secretary of State. It won't exist till October, November time. I got a question why they've rushed this selection process through early. I suppose we can take that as you not ruling out running as an independent. But, you know, I've seen lots of people on, on social media quite keen for you to do that. And, the re- you know, these are people who don't know much about the politics of the Northeast. So it's, it's, you know, with all due respect, it's probably not because they know much about your delivery um, in the job, but it's because they see that there is a situation whereby Keir Starmer and the people at the top of the Labour Party are able to, across the country, expel and exclude left-wingers on dodgy pretenses, and they don't pay any cost. And the reason they don't pay any cost is because unlike when Jeremy Corbyn was in power, the media don't care about things which go on within the Labour Party because they're happy with the leadership. So if any left-winger gets kicked out, I mean, I know you've done some interviews this weekend, but you can't exactly, it's not the kind of thing that's going to damage the standing of Keir Starmer among the public or the media. Um, So unless, you know, the the only way to impose a cost on them, let's say, for this kind of behaviour is to stand against them, is what people are saying. So, uh, So is that something you would consider? Do you buy that kind of logic, that argument? I understand the argument. Um, I'm mayor until May next year anyway. Um, there's, there's, I only found out about this on Friday. Uh, it's only Monday now. So um, what I want to do is to, is to change the Labour Party's decision, and that may or may not be successful, um, you know, except that's a, a big hill to climb. Um, but regardless, my number one loyalty is to the people who elected me, not to any political party. Parties choose the candidates, but when you are elected, you're there to do a good job for the people who elected you. Um, so that's what I'm going to be focusing on for this next year, regardless of whatever else might happen. Um, but, you know, it, clearly, if the Labour Party reject me, um, then I'll be free to, to say whatever I want to say. Covering the Labour Party over the past couple of years, um, I feel like they can kind of get away with whatever they want. Um, that seems to be how the party is structured. But you know, if 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 there is a small chance of you being able to sort of stand up to the powers that be in Labour HQ and the NEC and Keir Starmer, I mean, what would it be? What what routes can you now take? Can you take them to court? I mean, what what, what would it look like to get this overturned? Yeah, I mean, legal action takes an awful long time. It's very very expensive, and it's notoriously um, uh, a, a coin toss, isn't it? About what actually comes out. So um, taking them to court, um, maybe maybe not. But I think that's very very difficult. Um, what I fundamentally believe is obviously his members in the Labour Party should choose. Um, I also know this idea, actually, that, he, that you know that you perhaps alluded to earlier, that this doesn't have a cost for the Labour Party. I'm not sure that's true. I've been stopped in the street today by someone I've never met before who said, I think it's disgusting what they've done to you. There being people saying, we're never going to vote Labour again. If Labour wants to win back the Red Wall, it absolutely needs to say, we're going to trust the people in these places to make their decisions. This is already costing them. It's causing electoral damage, regardless of what happens next. So I think there is a cost there. Now, I think it's a cost that they're willing to pay. Um, And I've got to say that there is not necessarily Kia, or certainly not the front bench. I think there's some good people on the front bench. Um, But um, I think there are those within the party who live up to that Nye Bevan quote that says they would rather have a scorched earth policy than than see left-wing people do a good job. Um, and so, you know, I really certainly hope, regardless of what they do to me, that we have a Labour government coming in soon. Um, 18 months' time is, is you know, the generally received wisdom of when the next election will be. Um, but that Labour government will inherit 13, 14, 15 years of austerity, huge problems with public finance, public sector workers who are running out of money before the end of the month. And that Labour government is going to have to deliver um, so I think there are those in the party who are focusing on keeping control of the party rather than planning to win the election and to deliver what the people of Britain need. And you're asking me about you know, the label Corbynista, um, and that's one that I think is a, a bit of a lazy label. And I prefer to say socialist, um, and I define socialism as a country being run in the interests of the people who do the work. Jamie Driscoll, thank you so much for joining me. And, uh, you know, it's a non-partisan show, but good luck, because this was, I think, by any measure, pretty much a democratic outrage. Um, as I say, I don't have too much faith in the party structures, but um, one way or another, um, it would be good to see a little bit of justice done here.
Let's go on to our next story. Rishi Sunak has made a surprise appearance in Dover. In a hastily arranged press conference, he updated the British public on the apparent success of the government's efforts to stop small boat crossings since introducing the illegal migration bill to Parliament. Our plan is starting to work. Before I launched my plan in December, the number entering the UK illegally in small boats had more than quadrupled in two years. Now, some said this problem was insoluble, or just a fact of 21st century life. They'd lost faith in politicians to put in the hard yards to do something about it. And of course, we still have a long way to go. But in the five months since I launched the plan, crossings are now down 20% compared to last year. That's right, crossings are down 20%. This is the first time since this problem began that arrivals between January and May have fallen compared to the year before. On the numbers, Sunak seems to be correct. In 2022, the Home Office recorded 9,500 people arriving via the channel between January and the end of May. Um, In 2023, the figure for the same period was 7,500. However, whether that's thanks to any government policy is unclear. A journalist at the press conference asked if the drop might be just thanks to poor weather that makes it harder to cross the channel. Do you actually have any evidence that it is your policies uh, of deterrence that are leading to this drop and not something like bad weather, for instance, that there's been actually reducing the number of people crossing? Well, thanks, Andy. I think that there are, there are two things I'd point to. One is the fact that crossings elsewhere in Europe are up, uh, are up by almost a third over a similar time period, and yet crossings into the UK are down by a fifth. I think that should tell us something, that something is going on here, and that's the result, I think, of the actions that we've put in place, and there's a range of different actions that we've put in place that are contributing to that. And I think the best example, as I was saying to, to Chris earlier, is when you look at the number of illegal migrants coming from Albania. Now, I think people will remember when we last spoke about this, I said to everyone, Albania accounted for around a third of all uh, small boat arrivals last year, a third. And Albania is, of course, a safe European country. So we put in place a range of changes, a new deal with Albania that that we negotiated. And I pay tribute to Robert Jenrick, the immigration minister, the Home Secretary, for all their work on this uh, Albanian situation. A new deal with Albania that allows us to return people, a change in how we process Albanian claims. And you can see the proof is in the numbers. So since we put those changes in place, the rejection or the acceptance rate for Albanian asylum claims has now gone all the way down to around 2%. Tory ministers are, of course, always keen to show how tough they're being on Albanians. But immigration expert Colin Yeo thinks they might be mistaken in thinking this shows their overall strategy is working. So he writes, The British government has gone big on singling out Albanians and Sunak specifically points to government success in returning 1,800 Albanians. There was a significant rise in Albanian arrivals last year and it was short-lived. Over 12,000 arrived in small boats in 2022 compared to, so far, 28 in 2023. Sunak claims this is proof that our deterrent strategy can work. He says people stop coming if they know they won't get to stay. The problem is that this has nothing to do with Rwanda or the illegal migration bill because the illegal migration bill was announced on the 7th of February 2023, long after the strange spike in Albanian asylum claims had fallen. On Sky News, immigration expert Lou Calvi made a similar point says that the numbers have fallen 20% from the same time last year. Is it, is it not fair to say that in that case that the government's policy does appear to be making an impact? Well, I think that's a huge leap. Um, the numbers of people detected crossing in small boats have, have fallen off over the last two months. Interestingly, um, the Home Office usually report immigration statistics quarterly. This is uh, an, an exceptional report that's been issued with just two months data. So the data set's incomplete would be the first thing I would say. But yes, there does seem to be a reduction in the detected uh, number of small boat crossings. However, uh, the weather um, this year is uh, has been quite a lot worse than than the weather last year. So, you, you know, the, 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 the thing with small boat crossings is it's very dependent on the weather. And also um, the mode of entry uh, has most likely changed 
um, that would be the most obvious reason uh, for any net reduction in the detection of, of small boat crossings. Uh, we're starting to see a return to some of the undetected crossings in uh, via land, uh, so backs of lorries, trains, um, which is, is really not what anyone wants to be seeing. It's incredibly dangerous. Also in Sunak's speech was a pledge to find even more grim ways to house asylum seekers. I promised we would get illegal migrants out of hotels and into alternative sites, including military facilities. Today, I can confirm new large sites will open at Wethersfield and Scampton, with hundreds moving in over the summer and nearly 3,000 by the autumn. And while we're bringing those sites online, we're also making more efficient use of hotels by asking people to share rooms where it's appropriate to do so. We found an additional 11,500 places, which will save taxpayers an extra £250 million a year. And I say to those migrants who are objecting, this is more than fair. If you're coming here illegally, claiming sanctuary from death, torture or persecution, then you should be willing to share a taxpayer-funded hotel room in central London. To reduce pressures on local communities, we'll also house people on ships. The first will arrive in Portland in the next fortnight, and we've secured another two today that will accommodate another thousand. So as well as about cutting costs, these ever grimmer strategies for housing migrants seem to be part of a deterrence strategy. So saying it's going to be pretty miserable if you come, so don't. But is there any evidence that that is effective? Now, according to a report in The Times, even Home Office officials have their doubts about the illegal migration bill. It reports this. A Home Office source said ministers had, quote, demented assumptions about the deterrent effects and that officials were despairing about the practicalities of implementing measures in the bill, which the government hopes will be on the statute book by September. Home Office research last year concluded that there was no evidence that hostile policies changed the behaviour of migrants. The officials said this contradicted repeated government assertions that the UK must deter migrants by reducing the pull factors that make Britain an attractive destination, such as the low chance of being removed and the availability of informal work. So they're suggesting that if the Rwanda plan, for example, or automatic deportations come into force, that isn't necessarily going to stop people coming in. Ultimately, though, success probably isn't really the motive here when it comes to these policies. And all Rishi Sunak really wanted today was some footage of him with a life jacket on talking to Border Force in the channel. In this clip, you'll hear commentary from Sky's Beth Rigby. He was here today to say, look, my plan is working. Boat crossings at this time of the year compared to a year ago, he said, were down by a fifth. He was asked whether that was to do with weather conditions rather than his policies. He said, well, the evidence shows that they are up uh, across other parts of Europe. So therefore, he thinks the plan is working. I guess the big question is that when he says stop the boats, can he really? Uh, in 2019, boat crossings stood at about 1,800. In 2020, it was about 8,500. In 2021, it was 28,500. We haven't had any commitment from the Prime Minister about what numbers he actually wants to get to. And when he was asked in the press conference, uh, he didn't answer that question. He swerved it. I read an interesting blog from Dominic Cummings about a year ago, I think, where he was sort of saying, the truth to political communication is barely anyone's listening. You know, lots of people will see the, the, the TV in the background, the gym, or they'll just be these sort of images when they're watching the news or whatever, and they're, they're not really listening to the details. So it's really important where you make your politician stand. So he said with Boris Johnson, they, they knew there was maybe a weakness with the NHS. So it's constantly just dressed up in his, um, you know, nurse's outfit? I don't know. No, not his nurse's outfit. You know, his, his, his scrubs that make it hygienic to be in, in a hospital and in hospitals. That would have been before 2019, so before COVID. I think he was in this blog advising Keir Starmer to constantly stand in front of police stations. Um, and Rishi Sunak seems to think it is wise to pose um, in front of the White Cliffs of Dover. Um, Mike Bancole, um, what do you think this is about? Was was today's announcement, or it's not really an announcement, today's sort of speech merely an opportunity for, for Sunak to stand on a boat in the channel? Yeah, and it's all about the Conservatives showcasing how bold and how cruel they've been to migrants. I mean, that's all their, that's their modus operandi when it comes to asylum. They don't care about creating an efficient and fair system. It's all about how can we be cruel and dehumanise migrants in the most, you know, 
horrible as possible. So whether it's housing them on ships, whether it's shipping them over to Rwanda, that's the government's concern. It's about cruelty. And really, what the government fails to realise is that they're not only appealing to a shrinking base, but they're failing to address a really important issue here. You know, migrants shouldn't be forced, people seeking refuge shouldn't be forced to take dinghies across the English Channel. The only reason people do this is because they're desperate to, to, to come over to the UK and there are no alternative routes. I mean, you simply don't hang onto the back of a lorry or take a dinghy across the channel if you can take a plane. So the government should be focused on providing safe routes for refugees and asylum seekers to enter this country. It's their duty to do so. And I think look, the Conservatives think it's, it's a vote winner for them to be cruel to migrants. But I actually think they'll be very, very shocked to, to realise that, you know, millions of people in this country reject the anti-immigrant rhetoric. And I think it's quite interesting to me as someone who does research on minorities in politics that the leading politicians on this have been in the past Priti Patel. Suela Braveman's also been a leading politician when it comes to anti-migrant rhetoric in recent years. And Rishi Sunak, he was celebrated when he was when he entered office. He was celebrated as the first British ethnic minority prime minister. And yes, that's something that's worthy of celebration in some senses, but it's actually no guarantee that, you know, we're going to see the interests of minorities represented. And I think Sunak's government's a reminder of that. Well, you can have minorities in high places, sure, fantastic. But actually, in some cases, minorities have no interest in defending the interests of minorities. If anything, quite the opposite. They use their status as minority MPs to push some of the most horrible and repressive policies that affect minority communities. Because we know a lot of these refugees are coming from, you know, Afghanistan, for example, they would be ethnic minorities in this country. And I think, you know, we're seeing minorities in government at the moment pass policies that would in some ways prevent some of their family from coming over this country if, if, if the shoe, you know, if, if they were coming over in 2023. So I think it's, it's really weird to see Sunak, you know, push his policy and it's not going to win Conservatives any votes in future elections. Do you not think it will win future votes? Because I, I mean, I, I, t- I take your point that obviously representation of ethnic minorities in power doesn't mean justice for ethnic minorities in society. But I suppose you could say, you know, if, if, if there is a centre ground in British politics, it probably includes wanting some controls on migration and being against racism. So having um, some people of ethnic minorities bang on about controls on migration all the time, is, is there not a bit of a, a sort of sweet spot there that is quite appealing to people? Potentially, Michael, but I think there's, you know, being tough on immigration has been just frankly cruel. And I think the Conservatives have been for a number of years, whether it's a hostile environment which led to the Raindrush scandal, where it's the Rwanda policy and the illegal immigration bill, they've been frankly cruel. I mean, we're seeing asylum seekers who some have suffered from trafficking, you know, some have suffered from abuse. They're coming over to this country and living in inhospitable conditions. No voters in this country, really, or certainly only a very small section of voters in this country, would want migrants and asylum seekers to be shipped to be housed on boats and to be shipped to Rwanda. So I think they are appealing to a small base of the British public. And it's not a successful or, for me, a, a really conducive or certainly for an electoral success. I don't think it's a strategy that's going to help the Conservatives. Next story. A universal basic income has been an idea on the left for a while. Now, so it's the idea that we could all receive a lump sum each month from the state to meet our basic needs without doing anything in return. A UBI is often posited as a solution to automation, taking our jobs, or as a means to combat poverty without having to build up a big bureaucratic system to to target it. But would a UBI work? Well, to answer at least part of that question, the think tank Autonomy is launching a trial run. For two years, 30 lucky people will be given £1,600 a month and researchers will then study what they do with it, how it changes their lives. Earlier today, I spoke to Autonomy Director Will Strong. I started by asking him to explain the thinking behind the trial. So this trial is a kind of community-led consultation, uh, two locations in the country, one in Jarrow, one in East Finchley in London. This would be the first uh, pilot of basic income in England. Obviously, there's a pilot in Wales for care leavers. This would be a micro pilot. Um, and as we've seen in America, where they've run, well, they're running around 100 different pilots um, across the states. And this is really important to provide evidence, a bit of a precedent to understand what would the effects be on individual well-being and their kind of their personal finances as well, of course. So this is just a kind of one notch on the road towards a full basic income in the UK. Uh, and these pilots seem to be working quite well to kind of make the case to show actually this is what happens, as with the Finland example, this is what happens when you give people unconditional cash. 
And how are you choosing the the lucky people? Can our audience apply? Uh, that's a little further down the road because right now we're looking for investment in the pilot, right? So there's we're already getting emails from people saying, please, can I be part of it? Of course, it's a really big opportunity. Um, but that's gonna, that selection process will come later down the line. And we want to try and get a diversity of different kind of participants. So people, not only those who are on low incomes or you know using the existing welfare system, but also those who you know, have higher incomes. And we want to see what happens to their, you know, choices and lifestyles if if they do get a larger basic income so the mix is really important here this is not just about targeting those with, with low incomes we want to see kind of what kind of other changes for other kinds of people you want a representative sample right because what you want to do is see what would happen if we gave everyone in the country 1600 pounds a month you want a very representative group of people uh, yeah exactly and of course it's a micropilot so we can't know really the kind of society-wide effects of this kind of thing and this will hopefully be the first of many um, but yeah we definitely want a representative sample Let's look at someone who isn't impressed, Brendan Clark-Smith, MP, a Conservative. He said, they'll be surprised to hear there's a system already in place regarding income, which is widely referred to as employment. Who pays? is an absolutely dreadful idea. And I think the people behind this initiative will struggle to raise the funds necessary. So I suppose two points there, sort of this moral idea, if you want money, you should work for it. And then a more practical idea, which is how would anyone pay for this? Yeah, so let's take the first part of that. You know, that argument that, you know, the, if you want to have an income, get a job, that is a pre-welfare state, you know, Victorian era idea that basically there's no, you should have no means of subsistence, uh, no kind of safety net. And um, that's a 19th century idea, which I think all of us can, under, can understand is basically backward, reactionary, you know, the most progressive reforms to the welfare system um, have been ones that are more generous, more substantive, more supportive, and that helps the economy as a whole. So I think it's quite clear that that attitude to say, you know, we shouldn't have cash for those who aren't working. Uh, that's It's not even that controversial amongst conservative circles to say that that would be a reactionary position. The second is around funding. So this obviously for this scheme, we're looking for yeah investment, probably philanthropic investment, given that the current um, government uh, in, in, in Westminster was, will not kind of fund this kind of thing. So yes, philanthropic investment, we're looking for around 1.5 million to run this pilot. This is exactly the same as has been run you know, in America. All those pilots are really normally run by and funded by uh, philanthropic investment. Um, obviously, in some parts, some countries in the world, there has been state investments as well. So it's not outlandish to expect there to be some kind of philanthropic funding to support an experiment like this, given how huge this idea is now across, you know, across the world. So I don't, I, I think this is very possible. And I, and I don't think um, if you run with the idea that, for example, cash benefits themselves are a problem, you end up in pretty murky territory. I'm all in favor of this trial, but I suppose, is it answering the difficult questions when it comes to UBI? Because I suppose I would say, yeah, if you give people £1,600 a month, that's going to make their life better. You know, that, that, that seems somewhat uncontroversial. The difficult thing is how would we possibly give £1,600 to everyone in the country? Because if it's called the universal basic income, then that, that's the issue, right? My qualified skepticism about a UBI is that either it will be so low, if you're giving it to everyone, either it will be so low as to be you know, somewhat insignificant to people's lives, or it will be so high that when you times that by the population of the country, it will be so expensive, it's completely unworkable. How do you respond to, to that question? The, the real calculation isn't just £1,600 times the population because there'll probably be, A, different levels of basic income for children compared to adults. B, you'll probably take away some of the costs of the current welfare system, for example, job seekers' allowance and other kind of job-related benefits. So you'll, you'll get some money back from that. C, if you tax the basic income, so if you give it the kind of same kind of tax but as, as you might have in tax bans, then you'll get some of that back simply from kind of, you know, not giving as much of it away to rich people but still get a universal amount. Okay, so that's, when we think about the costs of it, actually, it's lower than the simple calculation. Secondly, I don't think it's feasible, as you say, and it's not really what people are saying, that we're going to go straight in UK-wide, £1,600 for every adult. That would be, you know, that would be like a big bang basic income experiment. Instead, and I think this is something which answers your first point, you look at some of the studies from Compass, from ourselves, from others. If you start with a modest basic income, uh, it's very affordable but it still has huge effects. So, for example, we, we ran a study in Wales uh, which looked at what would a basic income of £60 for adults a week, £40 for children per week, which doesn't sound like much. What would that do to things like child poverty rates, adult poverty rates? Child poverty would be slashed from somewhere between 50 and 60%, and that will happen very, very quickly. So even though it's not the game changer that £1,600 might be, if you can slash child poverty in half, adult poverty by something like a quarter, that's a massive reform you know, impact, which basically has never been achieved for half a century. That kind of 
um, inequality um, reduction measure is, is massive. So if you start with a modest introductory one, it's simply not true that it would be kind of too low to have any effect. That's something which I think is a good introductory model, which would then can move to larger, larger amounts. There have already been trials in, in Finland. I think one is ongoing in Wales. You mentioned some in North America. I mean, can you talk about what, what UBI trials have, have discovered so far or what, what findings they might have, have pushed out and how yours might be, might be different? Yeah, so the Finnish pilot, which ran for a number of years, um, that was, you know, testing uh, a basic income of a, a kind of a, still a substantial amount, not quite as much as £1,600, but nonetheless um, a, a fairly significant basic income. That had very interesting results, not only on the mental well-being, physical well-being of participants, but also things like trust in the state, like trust in state services. How do they feel in relation to public services now that they've basically been given free control over their resources um, and also kind of community cohesion. That was one of the findings of the trial. So that's particularly interesting um, from their study. In the Stockton, California pilot, which is um, kind of ongoing, as I believe, um, predominantly uh, black single mothers um, using uh, using the, uh, as participants in this pilot. Very interesting results there. It's hugely kind of important for their kind of home life, for um, the education of their children even improved, um, being able to make greater life choices in terms of their employment. That's a really interesting story that's going on. And I think there are many other pilots there, which I can't quite summarize here. But I think what we're looking for is, you know, given that this would be such a significant amount, it's not just a few hundred quid, it's 1,600 pounds. We want to, you know, stay quite close to the participants and be able to kind of check in, get their story really from the beginning to end of this pilot. And yeah, test similar things. You know, what happened to your mental health? You know, did you have, you know, if you're suffering from particular ailments already, what happened to those? You know, how did your relationship with your family and friends go? Things like that. So I think it's a real opportunity to get those you know, rich data sets from these participants. And it is, is only a micro pilot, but I think that's why we have to kind of really get as much as we can out of it. Final story. Mizzy, real name Bakari Bronze O'Garo, gained notoriety for a series of video stunts that had people enraged. Like this one. James, come to the front right now, please. James, James, give me a thumb. Hello, James. We want to speak to James. James, hi. Oh, that James. Is this where the study group is? No, no. What number is this? No. Study group. Come on. 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 And it's the study group. That video went viral and led to Mizzy's arrest, resulting in a criminal behaviour order and hundreds of pounds in fines. As part of that order, he was banned from entering private property and posting videos of strangers. Just a few days later, he was arrested again for breaching it. So, how has Britain's mainstream media responded to this attention-seeking young man who films himself causing distress to members of the public? Well, they've given him the attention he craves. Piers Morgan was the first big name to invite Mizzy on, where he was quite open about his intentions. Literally, hate brings money, hate brings likes, hate brings views. It doesn't matter. Love or hate, it still brings views. Why, would, why do you prefer to do the hateful stuff? I don't, not like I prefer to do the hateful stuff, it's just like it's easier to do the hateful stuff. Why are you laughing? And it's fun. Obviously, I don't think it's fun, but you're a funny person. You do think <laughs> it's funny? You're a funny person. You do, I've seen the videos. You do obviously, think it's just really funny. At the time, I think it's funny, my fan base thinks it's funny, and it's we outside, isn't it? It's a movement. But What's the deep movement? down, What's the movement? deep down, being free and not letting anyone tell you nothing. That's why I can do all of this stuff. I have to, I'm the most hated person on the internet right now. No, but you're not. Most people like, don't know who you are. Okay then, whatever you say, innit? Whatever you say. Please. Most people watching this will have never heard of you and care whatever you even say, less. Well, now they are. You just brought it to me, now no, they are. They'll just, think, they are. They'll just they look at the are. way you're behaving. Now they are, now they are. Um, whatever you think of the guy, it's hard to argue with that. And because that interview was such a success, Talk TV invited Mizzy back on over the weekend, where he read out a pre-prepared statement. The only reason I've been making news and headlines for so long is because I'm young, black and doing something different. And the major mainstream media think they can use me as an example, put me on TV so I can make a fool out of myself and appeal to the stereotype. It's a simple distraction technique used by the mainstream media to divert attention from the real problems in this country. If I wasn't the TikTok terror or done what I needed to do, would I be on this show right now or even on Perez Morgan? It's all propaganda at the end of the day. 
All these online personalities have had their own fair share of controversies. Worse than mine even, I still have a platform and that's because we give it to them with any type of attention. I'm just a teen from these rough areas. As journalists, it's your job to be highlighting the misery of people in this country and figuring out what their causes are instead of bringing some TikToker that makes silly pranks onto your show for views and ratings. The host of that show, Andre Walker, looked pretty pissed off and he struggled to hold that anger in. Watch how he intervenes after political commentator Reem Ibrahim asks Mizzy a question. You've spoken a lot about social media and how that's impacted you and that you want to sort of uh, get a lot of this attention on social media yourself. Do you think that you doing this on social media will encourage other people to commit crimes that potentially could cause a lot of damage? And I'm, by damage, I mean it could cause somebody to you know, be incredibly injured or something like that. Do you think you've encouraged that kind of behaviour? And he's not answering the question. Do you I think mean, I, don't, I don't understand this whole? Do you le- want to be like no, a good hey, 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 no, hang on a second. Hang on a second. You can do that to me. You're not doing it to a guest. You stare at another guest again, and I'm going to personally remove you. I, I'm not taking the mic. I'm not taking the mic. You glared at her in a threatening fashion. You do that, I'll drag you out by the hair, and you can be as hard as you pretend you are. You can be as hard as you pretend you are. You apologise to her right now, or you're leaving. You know I respect you, but I'm done here. Good, good riddance to bad rubbish. Threatening guest does not happen on my show under any circumstances. Reem, I'm very sorry, but the way he glared okay. at you Thank is not you, acceptable. Andrew. We never should have had him on the show. I didn't even want him here. I think the guy's a complete and total fool. And I, the fact that we, the fact that I attempted to have a sensible interview with an idiot like He's that off. is absolutely off. disgusting. Get and him out of here. Security, get, get him out. Get, Get the security from downstairs and get rid of him. Get rid of him, for Christ's sake. Do you know what? He's... Get rid of him. Oh, 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 he's angry. Jesus Christ. You know, Mizzy, not a likeable guy. Andre Walker, far, far more dislikable. You stared at her in a threatening way. What does that even mean? Now, you might be thinking, look, this is talk TV. These are people who are desperate for ratings. Of course, they would invite someone like Mizzy on to give him the attention he craves. But you'd be wrong if you thought it was just the likes of Talk TV, because the BBC has also had him on to discuss another obnoxious self-promoter, this time the extreme misogynist Andrew Tate. Now, according to Newsnight, they asked Mizzy because he had had an interaction with Tate online. This clip starts with author Laura Bates explaining to Kirsty Walk why she thinks Andrew Tate is so popular. You know, his traction is massive. And his traction is massive. I mean, there's stories of kids, like, in primary school knowing who Andrew Tate is. Yeah, well, I think part of that's because we're here discussing him you tonight. Guys give because... him, you give, guys give him the platform. It's literally what it is. You give him the platform. Mm. You're giving me the platform right now. Yeah. Everything I'm doing is bad, apparently, what you're saying. I'm on BBC News right now. I'm like, come on now. You man played the game. You're playing the game. It's all the system. But, you're actually painting a actually, picture but, into the audience. But actually, what's quite... Is this your water? It's my water now. It's fine. I totally agree with you. We're here talking yeah. about him tonight because the BBC has decided to give a 40-minute sit-down interview to a guy who's currently under arrest on but charges it, of rape and trafficking. But well, if he's under arrest for those charges, if they're really heinous crimes and you're not like... Why are you believing on my platform? No, why are you broadcasting what he's doing? But, why are you broadcasting? There's bigger things to worry about. I think there's, the thing there's is, hunger, there's world uh, hunger, on, there's uh, strikes, yes, there's all of this stuff. That, what let, is this? Let, what let, is this right uh, now? Let, what is Laura, this right now? Who am I? Mm. I'm someone from the hood. I'm an 18-year-old boy. I have a child. I'm from the hood. I'm just here. I'm that's actually fine. My and that's fine. And you've had your chance to speak, so I want to talk. Mike, I want your take on this. I mean, who does anyone come off well here? Who comes off worst? I mean, what do you make of this? I think this is one of those situations where everyone loses. Look, Mizzy has risen to notoriety for essentially being a nuisance. He's walked into people's homes. He's done stupid pranks that, you know, have gone viral on TikTok, right? And I think TV companies are aware that, look, this guy's, you know, trending on Twitter, trending on Instagram, wherever it might be, he's going to get us some clicks. But I think there's also something a bit more malicious that's happening here. And I think Mizzy's being used by TV companies as like a stereotype for what young black people are. So especially some of the right-wing press, they're aware, you know, they have a view of what young, what young black people are in this country, in parts of London maybe as well. Um, and, and they want to use Mizzy to push us. Like, look, I told you, they're all delinquents. Look at them. And, you know, this, this reminds me of some of the things that Tony Blair said in the past, for example. And I think there is a sense in this country that, you know, black people, there's a problem with black people. You know, there is obviously, we know racism is a big problem in this country. And I remember t- Tony Blair, when speaking about knife crime, said that black culture is to blame for knife crime. Right? He, he ignores things like poverty, ignores things like, you know, expulsion from schools, all these other contributing factors. And he says, well, actually, no, it's because you're black. That's why. And, you know, when it was in, in Glasgow, when similar knife crime was happening, 
you know, amongst white youth, it was never blamed on their ethnicity. So I think Maisie is being used to kind of advance this image of black people being delinquents, young black people being delinquents. And it's happened in the past. We constantly emphasize these negative stereotypes. We've seen it, the press do this in the past, you know, instead of advancing positive stories. So I think if I was to say the name Joshua Beckford to some, some of our listeners, they probably wouldn't be aware of Joshua Beckford. But Joshua Beckford, at the age of six, the young black boy from Tottenham, he was admitted to Oxford and he's completed a degree from Oxford at age 14. So those are the stories that we could emphasize, that the press could emphasize. We choose to emphasize Missy's delinquents because A, it gets clicks. Of course, that's something that the media companies want, but also it paints the image of a delinquent black man, which I think a lot of, you know, especially the right-wing press, it's an image they want to emphasize. Where is the decision made? Because I totally agree with you. I think that the elevation of this guy is in part rooted in, in, in racism and an idea that this, this fits a type um, and we can easily make our audience really angry about this, this, this obnoxious black guy. So let's put him on the television. But, you know, he went viral first on social media. So I suppose all of these producers can argue we were merely responding to a public demand because this was already a big deal on social media. And the BBC will say, well, we're only inviting him on because he's been in contact with Andrew Tate. Do you think producers at those shows are intentionally thinking, oh, let's... Let's make a scene out of this obnoxious black guy because they're racist or are, you know, where are the causal arrows here, if you see what I'm asking? So I think it's about making a scene. And, but they also look, for the BBC and for Talk TV, it's all about getting clicks. And I think as soon as he did the Piers Morgan interview, and I, I saw clips of that for days and days on my Twitter timeline, it went viral. And I think they're aware, look, for, for media companies, it's all about getting the clicks and, and getting an interaction, good or bad sometimes. So I think they realise, look, Means he's going to get us some clicks, going to get us some interaction. We'll, we'll have some videos on Twitter for a number of days. And, you know, the, the show will go, low, go on. So I do think it is about making a show of Mizzy. And they are responding to the fact that Mizzy's gone viral. But it's also about, you know, they want to paint this image of what young black people are. But he's not representative of young black people at all. As he notes himself, by the way, he should not have been given a platform. There are far bigger fish to fry. And I think we have seen in recent years the media focus on the wrong stories. There are so many bigger stories, more important stories than some random delinquent from London who does stupid pranks that we could focus on. But instead, we want to focus on this, partly because it gets clicks, but also partly because I think it's about pushing this image of, you know, blackness and black people being inherently violent, delinquents and linked to criminality. Mike Bankale, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Always a pleasure, Michael. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in tomorrow. I'll be back for another live show from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navarramedia.com slash support.